Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, tonight we're debating secular humanism versus Christianity, which is better for society, and we are starting right now with Matt's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us, Matt. The the floor is all yours. Did you say that twice or was there a hiccup? Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Hello to James. Thank you, Randall, for agreeing to do this. Um, I'm Matt Delaney. For those of you who don't know, most of you will know me as an atheist and a skeptic, but I'm also a humanist, and I've pointed out many times that of the three things there that uh, kind of define me and who I am, skepticism is the most important. Everything else is derived from that with regard to epistemology. So my atheism is the result of that. But my humanism isn't necessarily the result of uh, skepticism. I still apply skepticism to various claims. But it struck me when I was finding my way out of Christianity that what I needed was some sort of label for the package of things that I was going to accept and not accept and what my goals were with regard to ethics and morality. And uh, other people had already done uh, much of the heavy lifting for me. And so I've identified as a secular humanist for, I don't know, the past 20 some odd years. And it's today's subject is, is near dear to my heart, but it's also a little bit of a cheat because one of these two ideas, secular humanism versus Christianity, one of them is perhaps more flexible than the other. Um, The limitations that come when you start talking about Christianity and what Christianity's goals are and um, how it interacts with, with our culture and who we are is very different from secular humanism, even if we both have the same sort of goals in mind. Um, But whether or not we have the same goal in mind is, I guess, the question of this debate. Because when I talk about, is secular humanism better for the world than Christianity? I'm talking about for humans in this life. I'm not talking about an afterlife or goals of an afterlife. Uh, It doesn't matter to me whether what's good for humans is good for a god or some alien species or anything else like that. Um, What started off as, for me, God versus atheism um, became something more because God isn't a philosophy. It's not a system. It's not a worldview and neither is belief in God. And yet the packages that we get from those beliefs like Christianity, those can be a system or a worldview. Secular humanism has as its primary goal, the flourishment of human beings. Its goals are in the recognition that whether or not there is a God, whether or not there's something supernatural, it's irrelevant 
to secular humanism because we don't get to appeal to God claims and supernatural claims to fix our problems. Secular humanism begins with the recognition that we all share space here. We are going to have to live here together. The things that I do are going to impact your life. The things that you do are going to impact my life, perhaps not all the time and always, but by and large, that's that's the case. And in the recognition of that, knowing that we would like to flourish and that we would like to uh, be uh, live the sort of life uh, that we would generally refer to as better. Uh, and I know that right off the bat, we've got lots of potential terms to argue about and define about what's better. Is this better? Is that better? Is this a better world? Is that a better world? I think we can look at it uh, with some fairly simple examples. Um, a, a world that uh, supports and sanctions individual liberty and freedom as opposed to servility as opposed to slavery, as opposed to making humans second tier to something else, uh, would seem to be, in many ways, better for us. And if we're going to compare betters, we don't get to appeal to the supernatural there either. We don't get to say what's better for us with regard to an afterlife. And so I found myself in a world where no God had been shown to exist, where there isn't agreement on which God exists, where even within Christianity, which was the religion that I was a part of, there are countless denominations from different um with different perspectives on each aspect of this i remember one of my favorite debates of all time um was a, a debate between two christian apologists arguing over how what we must do to be saved essentially the subject of soteriology and each one of them showed up with bible verses to support their view and each one of them made a completely compelling case from the standpoint of those bible verses neither of them said <clears throat> you've interpreted this wrong they just opted for different verses and so if Christianity's ultimate guide is the Bible, and it can lead two devoted Christians to two completely different and mutually exclusive views on the, on the nature and, and qualifications for salvation, I don't know how it can be viewed as a good guide towards proper Christianity or an afterlife, let alone better for humanity as it is now. There are three versions of the Secular Humanist Manifesto. I prefer, I think, the second one, um, although I don't have it up to look at it. And what's key here is that if you begin with this notion that we're going to find the tools and the positions that allow us to have a more flourishing existence, to have a better existence, then it doesn't matter where you find those, which means if there is anything within Christianity, anything within Islam, anything within Scientology, although I'd be surprised, anything within some other religion or worldview that is undeniably better for human beings, dem demonstrably an improvement to the world, it is therefore consistent with humanism. And that's why I say in some ways the debate topic is a little bit of a cheat because humanism isn't a list of do's and don'ts. There are no Ten Commandments. Um, and that's also good in the sense that when we find out that there's a better way, we can then change and that becomes consistent with humanism or humanism actually changes to become consistent with the best methods. It's similar to science in that a scientific exploration of the world is an attempt to gain knowledge. And therefore, you're going to use the methods that consistently demonstrate that they're going to produce the best results, the, the most accurate model of reality. In the same way, while we don't have a specific set of tools that you can identify, we do have some tools, which is scientific evaluation of data, where 
religions in Christianity and others may spread through conversion or coercion. Um, the acceptance of secular humanism is done through data and discussion and debate, things like this. If you make a compelling case, my big thing is why would anyone not be a humanist? Now, I have some friends who aren't humanists anymore, despite the fact that they agree with everything in the Humanist Manifesto. They just don't think it goes far enough. Um, they think it should you know, also be about all sentient animals. And so maybe there's something better coming down the pipe um, for all sentient animals. But as it stands for human beings right now, the ethical values are derived from human need and interest and are tested by expertise. Um, humans are an integral part of nature, the result of evolutionary change, an unguided process. Um, this, these are things from the Humanist Manifesto, that knowledge of the world is derived by observation, experimentation, and rational analysis, that life's fulfillment emerges from individual participation in the service of human ideals, that humans are social by nature and find meaning in relationships, and working to benefit society maximizes individual happiness. When you have as your cornerstone human beings and their flourishing, and you compare that to a system that has as its foundation God and what God wants, first of all, you can have no guarantee that Christianity even considers human beings' best interests at all. If if the foundation of the of the of the system is to do what God wants you to do to live the life that God wants you to live, to be the person, albeit ostensibly better uh, from their perspective, that means that it is entirely God-focused. As a matter of fact, when I was a Christian, it would have been absurd. And I would have arrogantly dismissed anything that was human-focused as you have now put humans on a pedestal so that you worship humans and humanity in place of where God is. And that troubled me, especially when I first found my way out. And the answer is that from the standpoint of secular humanism, we're not worshiping humans in place of God. We're just recognizing that we as humans have to figure out how best to make decisions about ethical dilemmas in this world. Are men and women going to be equal? Are people of different races and ethnicities going to be considered equal? Are property rights going to be equal? Do people have sovereignty over their own body? Is the purpose of your daily life something that is decided by you or is it dictated by a god or by a government or by parents um, the the value of the individual freedom is sort of counterplayed by the recognition that you as an individual also have to share space with other people and this impact that we have with each other means humanism should look at any given situation and say in my view think about what would the world be like if everybody took the action I'm about to take or if everybody was free to take the action? Obviously, if everybody jumped at the same time, that, that might have an impact. It wouldn't, but it, it, something like that could have an impact that, that isn't what I'm portraying. But think globally, act locally. Think about um, what world we want to see. And if it's a world where people are generally happier, generally healthier, um, we're never going to solve every problem. But if the goal of their individual life is determined by their own autonomy uh, with as, min as little, imp uh, little imposition by governments and religions as possible, you end up with a world that is better. Now, how would you do better than a world that's focused on human beings? I don't know how you can do that by adding in a focus on a god 
an adherence to particular scriptures, declarations about you know human uh, who, who you can love, who you can marry, uh, you know all, all the various arguments that we get into. There's no denying that Christianity and religion have impacted the world many times in many ways, in many positive ways. But we have yet to have a secular humanist government. We have yet to put the principles of secular humanism into place in broad strokes. All we have are governments that are increasingly more secular and where people report a greater happiness. It's not the best way to go about figuring out which system is actually best. For me, it's about empathy, education, and effort. And if you contrast that with a God, a God may or may not be real. There's no agreement on God's existence. There's no agreement on what God wants. If if Randall's view of what, what the Christian God wants is different from my view, is different from somebody else's view, we don't have any way to actually solve these issues, which is why there's over a thousand denominations that identify as Christian in some sense, and they disagree on everything. Some of them are in favor of marriage equality. Some of them are in favor of legalizing marijuana. Some of them are opposed to abortion. Some of them aren't. It, the, the inability to say, here's how and why this system is better, is exacerbated within Christendom because it does not have that as the express goal. My understanding, and Randall's take may be different, my understanding from my time as a Christian is that the primary focus is Christ. The primary focus is God. My life is not mine under Christianity. My life is there to serve, to glorify, and to allow the Holy Spirit to move, to lead other people to Christ. While that may be ultimately good for us in a world we can't demonstrate exists and may lead to a better afterlife if in fact an afterlife like that exists it is not better for this world right here right now where 10 or 20 percent of your income is going to a and system that does not demonstrate that it has your best interests at heart whereas humanism does and doesn't ask you for a penny and time. Thank you very much for that opening statement. And want to let you know, folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, I'm your host, James. Want to say we hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you're from, Christian, atheist, Muslim, you name it. We're glad that you're here and have to let you know, few have had your fingers in your ears and you've been living in a cave on Mars. As you can see at the bottom right of your screen, if you haven't heard yet, our upcoming debate is on Saturday, April 22nd in Fort Worth, Texas. I should say our debate conference. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be huge. The links to the tickets are in the description box, including if you're like, well, James, I don't know. I'm pretty far from Fort Worth, Texas. Don't worry. You can actually watch this one live from at home for only a buck. If you throw a dollar into the crowdfund, that helps us cover the venue costs. The link for that crowdfund is down in the description box as well. It's going to have many huge debates. For example, Hussein Embers, as you can see at the bottom right of your screen, and Matt Delonte will be debating whether or not Islam is true. You don't want to miss it. So check out those links in the description box. And with that, we're going to kick it over to Randall. Thank you very much, Dr. Rouser. The floor is all yours for your opening as well. All right. Thanks for inviting me, James and Matt. Uh, great to be with you again debating. So I want to start with a quote from my favorite humanist, Carl Sagan. In his 1994 book, Pale Blue Dot, Sagan reflects on a photo of Earth taken in 1990 by the Voyager space probe from beyond the rings of Saturn. 
From that distance, the earth appears to be nothing more than a pale blue dot. Sagan wrote, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. Sagan goes on to describe eloquently the total aggregate of human existence, glorious and terrible, that has lived out life on this pale blue dot. As he put it, a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Sagan then laments human history in which we have spilled rivers of blood so that one person may have momentary mastery of a fraction of that dot. He then says we perpetuate endless cruelties on fellow human beings who are scarcely distinguishable from us. This well-known passage conveys three key elements of the humanist spirit, humility, nobility, and solidarity. The humility comes in the recognition that while our species has often fashioned ourselves kings of the world, standing on the prow of the Titanic, we are in fact more like a barnacle on the cosmic hull, eking out a marginal existence on a mote of dust. The nobility, uh, consider that we are the species that made that space probe, that took the picture, that can produce profound, haunting existential reflections inspired by it. As Blaise Pascal memorably put it, man is but a reed, the most feeble thing in nature, but he is a thinking reed. Finally, Sagan's words are a call to solidarity, to stand against the worst angels of our nature that lead us to dehumanize and objectify fellow human beings. Instead, we should seek out shared beliefs and values to unify us on this pale blue dot. Humility, nobility, solidarity, that may not exhaust what is meant by secular humanism today, but it's a fine starting point. And interestingly, Christianity shares important overlap with these three core humanist values. First, the Christian affirms humility about our station. As Ecclesiastes put it, smoke, nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. In the famous Latin phrase that has characterized Christian funerary art, memento mori, remember you are mortal. And as we are currently in Lent, let us not forget Ash Wednesday liturgy. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Second, the Christian affirms human nobility. For the Christian, the heart of this confession is found in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Human beings are created in the image of God and enjoy a unique status and a unique responsibility. Finally, solidarity. The heart of Christian teaching comes in Jesus Christ. Matt was certainly right about that, who taught his followers to love their neighbors as themselves. And then he went on to define neighbor as the one you are least likely to want to love. He also directed his followers to take up their cross daily in a life committed to solidarity with the least of these. And when Christians have aspired to do just that, like St. Francis of Assisi or Martin Luther King Jr., Christianity has shone the brightest. So the first thing I want to emphasize and underscore in this exchange is that Christianity and humanism are not scorched earth enemies. They do share much overlap in their values and interests with respect to human humility, nobility, and solidarity, and thus human flourishing. So now let's turn from the values that Christians and humanists share to the debate topic. The question is whether humanism is better for the world than Christianity. From my framework, the question can be put as, is humanism better at en enabling us to embody humility, nobility, and solidarity? I will argue that humanism isn't better. On the contrary, I believe Christianity is better at cultivating these shared values. Uh, one thing, however, I will happily concede that many historic expressions of Christianity or many Christians as individuals have not been effective at cultivating these pro-social goods, uh, certainly not as good as many secular humanists. 
For example, in the 19th century, the humanist and atheist Jeremy Bentham fought on the side of the angels when he opposed slavery against many of its Christian defenders. At the same time, note that Bentham fought shoulder to shoulder with the Christian abolitionist William Wilberforce. What I am defending is best described as mere Christianity centered on the Apostles' Creed and discipleship of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, let's turn to these three values. With respect to humility, Christianity and humanism share a strong recognition of human contingency and finitude, recognizing we are infinitesimally insignificant when contrasted with ultimate reality. Where Christianity differs, I think, is in the doctrine of original sin. Put simply, original sin refers to our incapacity to fulfill the end of being God's image bearers, or to put it, let's say, in Aristotelian terms, our incapacity to be people who exemplify virtue perfectly. The evidence of original sin is not hard to come by. In the 1930s, Germany was one of the most advanced civilizations on earth, and yet it carried out one of the most heinous moral atrocities in human history. After the war, the philosopher Mary Warnock wrote that as the British learned of the Holocaust, she said, I reflected for the first time that humans have a great deal in common. I could not be sure that I did not have instincts as detestable as those of the Nazis, nor that I would have had the clarity of vision or the strength of character to resist these instincts had I been German at the time. That is the importance of a doctrine of original sin. It's not moral fatalism or misanthropy, but rather a sober recognition of our inability as individuals and collectives to behave consistently and perfectly in the way that Sagan laments in his famous pale blue dot reflection. Nobility. Why are human beings special? Well, we can look to human capacities, reason, imagination, self-consciousness, language use, but there is always a danger with tying human value to the actualization of specific capacities. This leaves on the margin human beings who fail to actualize those capacities, reason, language, self-consciousness, what have you. At this point, the Judeo-Christian tradition offers an important foundation for human worth, one that ranges over the entire species and is rooted in the above-mentioned concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Let's say you purchase a large collection of old books. As you look through it, you find that some of those books have an embosser stamp declaring them from the library of Mark Twain. Those books may not at all have any single feature in themselves that makes them more valuable than the other books in the collection, except that they have the embosser stamp. But every book that has that stamp has a value that is distinct from the other books, the value of being from the library of Mark Twain. The doctrine of Imago Dei is akin to saying that among living things, human beings on earth are unique in having the divine embossers stamp. Just as the book increases in value in virtue of being from the library of Mark Twain, so the human being gains a unique value in virtue of being in God's image, a value that exists independently of the individual's acquisition of any specific power like reason or language or imagination. And finally, solidarity. At the heart of Christianity is indeed the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. The most famous collection of Jesus's teaching is the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes, consisting of blessings on all of those on the margins, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, uh, the meek, those who thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the poor in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Only the strong survive. History is told by the winners. 
He who dies with the most toys wins. Might makes right. These values of power have been enormously influential in human history. Dominant though they may be, they are deeply corrosive for those concerned to cultivate solidarity on the pale blue dot. Jesus challenges our valuation of the rich and powerful by inviting us to view all human beings as defined by inestimable value. The message, in short, is that we are all in need of grace, unmerited favor, and just as God in Jesus extends that grace to all, so we should do so to one another. Let me return to Martin Luther King Jr. When he was young, he had assumed that the ethic of Jesus to turn the other cheek and love your enemies was a fine teaching as far as it goes, but King did not see it as extending any further than offering reconciliation to alienated individuals. As King saw it, the teaching was simply not practical when applied to large groups, let alone nations. Eventually, however, King became convinced that following Jesus in radical nonviolence and self-denial could truly change the world. He reflected, I came to feel that this was the only morally and practically sound method open to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom. King also came to recognize that Jesus' love of enemies and commitment to nonviolence is not a method for cowards. It does resist. Indeed, it is a unique discipline that refuses to respond in kind to acts of aggression and humiliation, but instead to resolve to respond in the way of peace and nonviolence while extending the grace of humanity to the very one who oppresses. King added that with peaceful resistance must come, quote, a willingness to forgive, not seven times, but 70 times seven. The cross is an eternal expression of the length to which God will go in order to restore broken humanity. King recognized in Jesus a preeminently powerful and challenging model to admit our humility, honor our nobility, and embrace solidarity on the pale blue thought. I'm going to conclude now my remarks with one final comment, and this is on one additional criterion that we could identify, which I think Christianity has in um, more effectively embodied than humanism, that is hope. Specifically, a deepened sense of hope that motivates or should motivate to action. The hope is famously summarized by the words of King himself when he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it does bend toward justice. One day, God's kingdom foreshadowed in those beatitudes will come on earth as it is in heaven. This is not a call for the Christian or anyone to quietism, to doing nothing. Rather, Christians have recognized that hope is a rallying call to action. As the Apostle Paul put it, uh, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap harvest if we do not give up. In the words of John Wesley, do all the good you can to all by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can. Now, that is the vision of a Christian humanism by which we can cultivate a shared humanity together in emulation of Jesus Christ on this pale blue dot. Thank you very much for that opening as well, Dr. Rouser. We are going to jump into the open conversation, but I want to give you a couple of quick housekeeping things, folks. In particular, tonight, tonight's debate will be a little bit shorter than usual. We'll be doing about an hour and a half. So one additional thing before we go into the Q&A, or I should say the open discussion, is that Modern Day Debate is available on podcasts. All of our debates end up on the podcast. It's ad-free. We want to make listening to these debates as easily available as possible so you can listen to them on the go. So if you haven't yet, pull out your phone or your favorite podcast app 
and find Modern Day Debate and follow us so that you can listen to these debates on the go as all of them end up on the podcast within about 24 hours of them being live on YouTube. So with that, we're going to jump into the open dialogue. Thanks very much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours. Well, who's going to start? I, I have a question. Yeah. Maybe it'll kick us off. So, oddly, I mean, it's been it's been several years, but you and I debated once before. I think it was a team debate at that point, so we didn't get to talk quite as much. Um, yeah, I would agree with you that Christianity and humanism are not scorched earth enemies and that there is, in fact, some overlap. The part that bothers me, as many people would suspect, is is the part where there's not an overlap that seems perhaps superfluous. And so when you said that in, in assessing whether or not there's a better world, you were going with mere Christianity centered on the Apostles' Creed, which part of the Apostles' Creed addresses human flourishing at all? Because when I read the Apostles' Creed, it's I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That has nothing to do with human flourishing. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, his Lord, or our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried, ascended to hell, the third day rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty, and then will come to judge the living and the dead. Apart from the potential judgment thing, there's nothing in there that has to do with human flourishing. And then finally, it's I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, which we can toss that out. Uh, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, uh, the resurrection of the body and the life of laughing. There's literally, apart from judging, there's nothing in there that addresses human flourishing. And that judgment uh, addresses human flourishing with respect to a, a next life. So how is the Apostles' Creed relevant to making daily life better for humans? Well, so first of all, the um, uh, sidebar, but but you don't toss out the Catholic. It's small c Catholic. Catholicos is just universal church. It's not referencing Roman Catholic. That's why Protestants and others can confess it. Yes. Oh, okay. But um, <clears throat> so the, the central, the heartbeat, as I'm sure you recognize, of the Apostle Creed is Jesus, right? It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's all about human flourishing. So why, what is this atoning death about? It's about restoring us to relationship with God with fellow human beings, with other creatures, and indeed with ourselves. That's the whole point. Um, the idea of Jesus' resurrection is not just a one-off party trick. It is, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the idea of the first fruits of our future resurrection. The idea that human life has a telos or goal or a purpose toward which it is directed. Uh, so, I mean, I think the whole thing properly understood. Oh, and, and then in terms of, of reference to the community of faith afterwards, all part of human flourishing, recognizing the importance of human relationships and so on, recognizing God as creator. I mean, we have to understand who is God under what kind of being is this for our Christians? And I know uh, there are many caricatures as, as to what a Christian or a theist would believe, but what I would understand God to be as a concept in its essence, I think is aptly described by Anselm, that being then which none greater can be conceived. In other words, God is the maximally great being, God is coextensive with whatever is maximally good, great, perfect, all those things. So human flourishing would be that which is lived in actualization with or in right relationship with that which is perfect or which is the perfect manifestation of the good, right? But Plato would have called the, the form of the good, uh, what a Christian would understand to be the triune God. So I think the whole thing is framed uh, with respect to human flourishing. But the one thing I'd want to emphasize, which I have tried to underscore for this debate, 
Because I agree with you, the way I interpreted the question is we're not debating the truth of these respective worldviews per se. What we're talking about is which one of them offers a better framework here and now in the four score and seven years we have on planet Earth for human flourishing. Uh, and I do believe that for the reasons I gave that Christianity does structure um, that effectively. Yeah, I, I swear I'm not trying to be obtuse, but when you say Jesus is all about human flourishing, um, what about Jesus impacts my flourishing in the world right now? I, can you state the question again? I'm obviously sure. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, can so the issue here is I'm going to I'm I'm 54 as of yesterday. Uh, hooray! I survived one more loop around the sun and i have i don't know how many more birthdays in the future but i would like to um, have as many as is reasonable and have a life that is uh, good and better now if i just run around all willy-nilly without a thought for anybody else i'm probably not going to have that good of a life but if i adopt the principles of secular humanism i can what is it about jesus and a belief in jesus that would make my life better from now until I'm dead. I would want to say it's, it, I don't want to talk uh, or focus on belief in Jesus. I want to focus on living a life in emulation of Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself okay. talks in uh, Matthew 25, where he distinguishes the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are defined as those who have undertaken these particular actions, right? To visiting those in prison, comforting those who mourn, feeding those who are hungry. That's what the sheep are defined like. So the one thing I would say is that's the life Jesus modeled for us. When I talk about a life of an individual taking up their cross, what what a that is a metaphor for is living a life of not just self-denial, but loving your neighbor as yourself. So it's not just a denial of yourself, but it's a recognition that the fulfillment of yourself comes in right relationship with others, something that Jesus modeled and taught us to do, and that as we live that out by his authority and within that framework of understanding human flourishing, then what happens um, in the reconciliation of enemies, like I think is so well expressed in the civil rights movement, that is a result, and human flourishing is the result. Can I ask, uh, just to turn it around sure. to you, um, you had an you, you had an interesting discussion or, or recognition. You have some people that were humanists, and then they they believe well, there's something missing there in terms of of um, the animal kingdom. It was interesting when I, I read through the, the number three humanist manifesto today, the most recent one, and uh, when I read it, it was the way that it described the value of nature around us was seemed to be derivative of hum, human flourishing, um, which is so I understand in a sense where, why why. There is a kind of pushback to say, well, shouldn't we recognize the value of, of creation or nature, of sentient creatures, of ecosystems in themselves and not just with respect to human flourishing? Would you recognize that that's a weakness in the expression of humanism as you hold it? Well, one more time with what, what part is the weakness? So the idea that... that um, that that uh, what your friends were pushing back on, it seems to me, is is that nature uh, and sentient creatures and ecosystems are not intrinsically valuable in themselves, but rather only derivatively insofar as they impact human beings or, or are required for the flourishing of human beings. Yeah, well, so I, I, 
I don't know that that would be a problem with humanism since humans are the focus. My the people that I was talking about, just for clarity, um, are ethical vegans who don't think that humanism goes far enough to protect um, other potential or, or other animals. And so I, I guess what what I would mean, what I would just rephrase that then is, do you sense that what the, the strength of their arguments that there's a limitation in humanism as an ethical value system in that it makes the rest of nature in its value derivative upon human flourishing? No, I think that's a mistake on their part. I don't okay. I don't mind that things are uh, derivative. So I am always going to value myself first, the people nearer to me uh, in their circles, you know, second, and then it, it goes out, it, it branches out. The further we get away from me, both geographically and uh, familially, and by the way, I'm not talking about necessarily bloodline, um, just my capacity, as I think is true for anybody, um, to fully empathize and 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 value uh, begins to diminish. But as basic principles, I hold that um, human beings, by virtue of merely being human beings, and which makes me absolutely unapologetically speciesist, um, have value. It's not they don't have value because they're created in the image of God. They have value. My life's valuable because it's valuable to me. Your life's valuable because it's valuable to you. Your life matters to me because our lives are intertwined. That sort of thing. It's, it doesn't need some external justification. It is a recognition that as long as we're here sharing space, uh, it's far. We know from game theory, it's far better for us to work cooperatively than it is to struggle. Um, and so, that's so on to your a view for both of us. On, on your view human life is only valuable relative to the individual whose life it is who happens to value their own life. So it's just a purely subjective valuation of the individual of their own life. And then of other individuals only derivatively insofar as it impacts their life. Well, it's, it's just a day, a recognition that since I value my life, it's reasonable for me to conclude that everybody else is going to value their life. And so I value their life as well because their lives impact my life. Um, you can get to, you know, purely altruistic things or things that are equivalent to what we perceive to be altruism from selfish means. And in, in order for me to live the best life I can, it's in my best interest to work cooperative with other people, including people that I don't necessarily like or agree with. Um, because if I don't, you know, what chance do I have of changing minds or impacting the world and that sort of thing? The the value is just asserted. Um, you know, it's not, it's not much different from saying that humans have uh, value because they're created in God's image. The difference being we're not trying to claim that they have value for something we can't prove. If, if your view is that humans have value because they're created in God's image, how do you prove that? And what do you do with the people who don't believe that? Instead, if you begin with humans have value, period, you're done. So, yeah, but so it seems to me on your view, it's it's a pretty radically subjective concept of human value that humanism, as you understand it, is simply certain people have happen to like themselves. Obviously, not everybody does. Not everybody likes themselves. Not everybody likes their life. But if you do, um, then you could be a humanist just because you happen to subjectively value your own life. You could be a humanist um, whether you value your own life or not. You can agree with the principles. Well, so so you've defined your you, your understanding of humanism as so. I, what I'm here is uh, we came to the dance together in a sense. So if you want to talk about Christianity, don't talk about those people who support Donald Trump. You got to talk to me. 
And if I want to talk about humanism, I'm not, not going to talk about the people that don't value their own life. I'll talk to you, right? Because on no, your no, no. understanding of humanism, you've defined it in this way. No, no. I could I could reach a point tomorrow where I no longer value my own life, but I would still be a humanist. Um, I might I might reach a point tomorrow where because of a terminal illness or because my suffering now outweighs um, my capacity uh, to enjoy life, I might no longer wish to continue living, but I would still be a humanist. I would still be someone who advocates for those principles because I recognize that it's not just about me. This is this is the key thing, or one of one of the key things of humanism is that it's not just oh I like my life and therefore I'm going to like everybody else's life. It's a recognition that this is true for nearly everybody. Yes, there are exceptions, um, but you don't you don't make guidelines based on the exceptions. You make your guidelines based on who humans are and what they do. And and recognizing that I so for example I don't think that there's you, you will you will possibly disagree I don't think that there's any reasonable way to make the Bible appear to hold men and women equal but I do and I continue to support that position I mean when when you have different rules for who can own property and what kind of property and who can speak in church and who can't speak in church and telling wives to submit yourself to the husband as to the Lord, you've created a hierarchy. Um, and I get it. Not it. This is what the Bible says. This isn't necessarily a Christian model that everybody accepts, but you create a hierarchy that is necessarily by definition unequal. My perception or my, my, my position is that from a humanist perspective, there isn't, a perceived inequality in value or position or status in the world from with regard to humanism. And so if someone holds that Christianity is better for the world than humanism, one of the things they would have to do is either point out that their version of Christianity doesn't have that hierarchy or show why that hierarchy is better, right? Well, yeah, certainly I'm an egalitarian um, in gender relations. But um, let's say that, that you have... Um, like an anencephalic child born without a cerebrum. Uh, they're an orphan and there's there's nobody who loves them, right? They're at an orphanage in Romania or somewhere. And um, what makes that child of value? If they're, they're not, they can't value themselves and nobody values them. What makes that individual child of value, of valuable? Humanism. The, the very principle is this person has and, and by the way it doesn't necessarily we're not saying that all life is equally valuable or that you know it's, that there aren't one of the one of the nice things about humanism is that it it, it advocates in, in oh i'm gonna get in trouble because i'm advocating for stuff that there are humanists who may not agree with but for example death with dignity and, and medical assistance in dying i just removed myself from a convention but i'm now back a part of it because they were supporting a catholic charity that was opposed to medical assistance in dying what th there's nothing that makes or grants any baby, no matter what issue or condition, uh, doesn't imbue it with value. And it doesn't make any difference to say, oh, it has value because it's created in God's image, because not only can you not prove that, but that doesn't also mean that it has value. It might have value to God, but it doesn't have value to the to the person sitting next to you. And so if the issue here is, why do we value this? It's because as humanists, we recognize that we're going to afford all human beings the rights and privileges that we would like to have. Uh, well, of course, I can't 
prove my views, you can't prove your views. So arguing that one can't prove the views of the other is not in and of itself, um, you know, a, a point that sustains the opposing position because they're both in the same point, the same boat. <clears throat> well, okay, then if you remove that and say, okay, Matt can't demonstrate that this person has any value and I can't demonstrate that this person has any value. So we'll just call that uh, a wash and ignore whether or not individuals have value. Because if my system says they have value and your system says they have value and we and neither of us under under your your model there can demonstrate that we can demonstrate the truth of whether or not they have value, um, which I think we actually can, because I can sit here and say, I value other people. Do you value other people? I think you do. And so my position that human beings value other people is demonstrably true. Can you do a demonstration like that for whether or not God values a person. So uh, the way that I think we come to, one way to, to come to a recognition of human value is through our moral intuitions. Uh, so for example, let's say that you have uh, a building and that there's two rooms in the building. And in one room, there is like 10 sentient, uh, well, of course, sentient, there's 10 self-conscious chimps that have been tr become relatively sophisticated language users like Bubbles the Chimp or something over several years in a research study. Enormously valuable chimps. And in the other room is a single human infant. And a fire breaks out and there's only time to go into the one room and save the 10 chimps or to the other room and save the one infant. Personally, I have very strong intuitions that whatever you're going to say about the chimps um, and how important they are and how much language they've learned, that one human child should have priority. So um, what I want to do then, because those are, for me, very strong moral intuitions, what we want to do then is try to find some basis to justify those moral intuitions. I see it insofar as what you're doing is you want to map humanism onto those values. Some people, uh, onto those intuitions, some people would, as I referenced in my opening statement, would want to map, well, because they are either rational beings or something, or they have the potential to develop rationality, which I think is is a is a weak position for the reasons I briefly gave in my opening statement. What I would think is, is the best way, because I'm a Christian, I've already got this doctrine of the Imago Dei, and it conforms very nicely with my moral intuitions about the moral significance of human beings. So there's a really interesting interlocking there and mutual reinforcement or dovetailing of my Judeo-Christian beliefs and of these deeply held moral intuitions about the moral significance of human beings. Yeah, so... It's not surprising that your moral intuitions would line up with your perception based on Imago Dei. I would argue that that's what you're trying to match up to. Um, but you also mentioned that you, you, we have these moral intuitions and we're trying to justify them. And I, I would argue that's not what I'm trying to do. I want to find out if they're correct, if they are the best, if my moral intuitions are accurate in this would lead to a better world. I want to see if they are justifiable not try to find a way to justify them. And so the 10 chimps in one world in one room versus one infant, um, all of these moral dilemmas annoy the crap out of me. <laughs> not, not your fault. They always will because they don't include enough information and they always create a, a bizarre scenario where you have to make this choice and or it's, it's there on purpose to push your moral intuitions. But what if one of those chimps has the cure for cancer? Like its blood now will cure millions of human beings. 
Does that mean that it's now more valuable than that baby? I don't know. I think it probably is. But I don't like to do these kind of math with lives scenarios because it may be that there is no good option and that I can value 10 chimps and a baby equally or a hundred chimps and a baby, or maybe one chimp and one human baby. I may, maybe I, maybe there's scenarios under which we can at the end of the day though, what, you know, um, the moral intuition that I would have as a Christian is that it's, you're going for the baby first all day, every day, every single time. There's no scenario uh, under which you're going to say that because I have no reason to think that chimps are going to in inherit an afterlife. On the other hand, I could also argue from a Christian perspective that maybe it's better for me to save the chimps because if God has a plan and this was God's plan and nothing can happen that doesn't go according to God's plan, then me saving the chimps was God's plan. You can kind of you can kind of do this dance thing. At the end of the day, that's about what you're valuing. I don't want to find out if my moral intuitions can be justified because that leads to potential rationalization. I want to find out are they correct or do I have good reason to think they're correct? And if the only reason that I have to think that they're correct is because they're consistent with other things that I can't demonstrate, like what a God thinks, uh, then I'm I'm just kind of sitting there engaged in in a sort of mental moral masturbation instead if i try to ground this in something that says okay we are going to say that human beings are afforded the same rights and freedoms and status by default as a general principle and that we 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 um what's the right word um we set aside those rights and freedoms only when there's sufficient reason like we ha we have to have a reason to lock somebody up we have to have a reason to you know, imprison them, for, you know, after committing a crime or something like that. Um, there are times where because of what they've done, people are no longer, uh, no longer have equal rights. But if we begin with that foundation of autonomy, what, what's a reason not to begin with that foundation just as a fiat declaration that men and women are equal, that human beings should have be afforded uh, equal treatment and consideration under the law and with regard to their social status and all that. Well, we well first of all, let me let me just come back to so the, the language sure. of justify them. So I, I don't actually I think those are properly basic beliefs. So I, I believe I'm a moderate foundationalist. So we begin uh, when we experience certain things, we form beliefs immediately upon them based upon certain experiences, data, and so on. And so when I contemplate an issue like that, my my the point of it being properly basic is there's no process of ratiocination, no deduction or induction or abductive process by which I draw the conclusion that I should save the infant over the 10 uh, chimps. And, I, and I, I, I missed something. I apologize. I missed something. Are you saying that moral intuitions are properly basic? An intuition is properly basic, whether it's a moral okay. one or it's a rational one. For example, a rational intuition would be uh, nothing can be taller than itself, or nothing can be red and green all over at the same time. Right? That's like a rational intuition, or uh, the laws of of uh, Aristotle's laws of thought, right? The law of non contradiction, etc. Those are rational intuitions. Moral intuitions are are properly basic beliefs that we form based simply based upon uh, reflection of issues or experiences of things, just like we form sense perceptual beliefs based simply upon sense perceptual experience. 
in the same way that if you, you look out the window and you see that it's sunny outside and you immediately form the belief it's sunny outside with any ratiocinative process, if you look out the side and you see a person getting sexually assaulted or beaten to death, you immediately form the belief that what's happening is wrong. Um, and in the same way, those are both beliefs that are formed immediately. Um, so when I was saying justify them, I wasn't uh, seeing that in a literal sense of they have to be epistemically justified. But what we do want to say is, okay, to what degree can my intuitions, which are not infallible, I mean, none of our beliefs are, is infallible. So what we do want to do in terms of uh, building up our noetic frameworks, ensuring that they're as rational as they can be, is to test them, test those intuitions, see if they if they can be embedded properly into a broader noetic set of beliefs we hold. Uh, and so that's what I'm talking about with respect to that. And so I think that the recognition that human beings do have some kind of status, which I referred to analogously with an embosser, right, in, in a book, uh, that tracks well to without. And I mean, if if it is a value that comes in virtue of being val of special value or like status by the creator and source of all things and of all good, that's a, a pretty strong rational ground in which to assent to the value of that thing versus the subjective individual valuation of oneself because one happens to like oneself and be oneself and then to extend derivatively that same value to other creatures so that you can collectively flourish more for as long as you happen to be on the planet. Yeah. Well, we went, you, first of all, I, I generally reject the notion of properly basic beliefs um, because I'm not convinced that there's um, like a non-doxastic non -doxastic justification. I think beliefs are always tied to other beliefs that we have, but setting true. that aside, that's true. If, if we're going to, if we're going to say, as you, as you did, uh, if you're going to tie this to a morally perfect being, and earlier we were talking about how we weren't able to address the truth of these things, then really what you're saying is that you're tying it to your belief that there's a morally perfect being and your belief that you have an understanding of what that morally perfect being wants or is or expects or would value. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm always going to so if you get have away those, from my own beliefs. That is true. Sure. But so we have, I'm sitting here saying human beings are equal, period. Just just as a, a starting foundation, where they go after that based on what they do is, is separate. But we're going to start with as far as value and rights and everything else, boom, human beings are equal. And the, the only reason for that is that we are the ones who guard and protect rights. We are the ones that uh, enshrine and codify what rights people are going to have. And so it's up to us to say, boom, uh, you know, here's at the outset, human beings are going to start on, you know, with equality. In your case, you're saying human beings are equal because I believe that there's a perfect being who made them in his image and that their purpose is to exemplify um, that or, or strive to exemplify that sort of perfection. So I have a declaration and you have a declaration that you have some extra justification for. Uh, I don't see any way to demonstrate that justification, but if that justification were to be true, how would being in God's image make you more equal than what humanism says? What I realize, I've more, equal, I realize <laughs> more equal is a problematic phrase, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, so when you said, when you're describing your view, you were saying 
human beings um, codify and recognize rights. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, not all human beings do that. Some human beings, as in the anencephalic orphan, I, I wasn't Romania, saying that every single unable. person codifies rights. I'm saying that humans. So some do o- and some don't. We are, so we, so it the, doesn't matter if some do and some species. don't. What I'm saying is that humanity, human yeah. beings, codify and guarantee and protect rights. They are, that is the only way that rights exist is by our action. I guess I'm I'm here with with your uh, vegan friends pushing back on what. Uh, but you kind of owned it, calling it speciesism, but it, it does seem arbitrary. And I'm not saying that relative to my view, my view could be, cons- you could say, well, your view is arbitrary because why did God choose this species? Well, I, I don't have to argue for God here, but you do have to argue for yourself. So I, I still am left saying, like, not all creatures, human beings recognize those rights. Not all of them are able to exercise rights or will ever be able to exercise rights. Why is that significant to map that then onto this collective species? There are no rights except for what we codify and protect. You don't have a right to anything unless we, as a collective, say you have that right and we are going to protect that right. It makes no sense to say I have a right that nobody is going to protect or guarantee. But the question was, if I say humans are equal and that's just the beginning point that we're going to assert that as the foundation for the decisions we're going to make about how to codify rights. And you say human beings are equal, but you say they're equal because they you're, you're convinced they're in the image of God. My question was, how does being in the image of God make them valuable? God is not just another person in the room. Uh, God is understood to be the maximal exemplification of goodness itself, of moral value, of obligation. So to ask, why is something valuable in virtue of being in special relationship with the source of all good? I mean, it's sort of a confused question in a sense. Now, there are other conceptions of God where that is a fair question, but I don't think on this one. You said, um, to come back at, at another direction, you said, there are no there are no rights unless we recognize it as a collective. So then you sort of ask, so if the collective decides not to recognize the right not to be tortured or something like that, correct? Does it follow that we don't have the right not to be tortured? It only correct. depends upon the subjective assent. Okay, then then how many human beings have to assent to a right in order for it to exist? Whatever. So, so for example, once upon a time, women didn't have the right to vote in the United States and neither did African-Americans. And we granted that right. There's a difference between what right they have and what right they should have. And so under a under a foundation of equality, if the United States had been started on humanist principles, women and African-Americans would have had a right to vote from the beginning. But because that wasn't the foundation, they had a different foundation for this. They did not have those rights and later had to fight for those rights. And then we grant them. But at the time, you know, a hundred years ago when women couldn't vote to say, I have the right to vote would have been false to say, I should have the right to vote could well be true because we're talking about what ought to be underneath a particular system. And under the humanist system, they should have had the right to vote under a Christian system. Should they have had the right to vote? Yeah. They should have. I believe so, yeah. What, what's the um, foundation under Christianity to suggest that they should have had a right to vote? Uh, w- w- women? Yeah. 
the Imago Dei. So uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the image of God, male and female together exemplify the image of God perfectly. But wives are supposed to be subject to their husband. Uh, so that's when you, when you want to get into, I'm not a complementarian. So if you want to have a debate about how to understand complementarian verses, that's a different debate to have. But Genesis 126, 27 is a foundational text with reference to what human beings are. And human beings are equal, made in the image of God. Genesis 126 and 27 is actually a pretty revolutionary text in the ancient world. Um, so, so you said initially, there are no rights unless we recognize it as a collective. But then when I asked you, well, so it seems like then the rights are created by simple assent of a certain number of human beings. Then you distinguish between, there's a distinction between having the right and whether they should have the right. Yes. Uh, so what that then seems to be is there are rights, irrespective of whether human beings recognize them or not. The question is whether human beings will recognize the right, such as the no, right no. that a woman should have to vote. It's, so not it like our, like it's not like a right exists as a thing and then we codify it. Uh, when so, you say so, I should have you this said right, should, yeah. when you say should have this right, you're saying under the principles of this system, what should be permissible? That's it. And and it's possible for the system, for example, the, the government of the United States, to not be consistent with its own values and positions. The fact that we the fact that we talk about all men are created equal doesn't mean that all men were created equal. We we had a system here in the United States that included uh a, a lip service to all men are uh endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights and all men are created equal. And then we have a three-fifths compromise in order to value some men as worth less, even though before we had the three-fifths compromise, they were worth nothing. And so it's possible for human beings to get it wrong, to say, here's the things that I value, and then in action, fail to do that. And so, so when I say they yeah. should have had a right, I'm saying if humanism had been the foundation of the United States, women and African Americans would have had the right to vote from the beginning, wouldn't have had to fight for it. Humanism, as you said, humanism, as you said yourself, um, is always changing. Open, it's open to changing. Uh, you said even it's kind of uh, I don't know what the, the term you used, an unfair debate or an asymmetric or whatever burden, because there's an openness to humanism to adaptation to change. Um, now, with that in mind, could could humanism change in the future, where it's no longer considered consistent with humanist values to extend a right to vote to women? No, that couldn't happen. You could know no. that a priori. No, it's not a priori. It's a posteriori. It's because we already know there, there comes a point where at the beginning, you may not know all the best things, but at least you've narrowed your focus as you begin to learn more about what could be in the pool of right. And let, until something comes along that shows that allowing women to vote is somehow anti-human or anti-equality, then that couldn't happen. And if it happens, then now you're in a conflict because women are humans. So they have to have those rights. So no, nothing could happen that could, could make the, the denying women the right to vote consistent with the values of human equality. Uh, is it possible that equals MC squared could be overturned in the future? I have no idea. I, I possible. I mean, the, the I, interesting I thing is that at I don't the end see of the 19th, 
Yeah, but at the end of the 19th century, physics was was physicists widely believed physics was basically closed. There were there were no longer big questions to be answered. It was all working out to the tenth decimal point. And then along comes a paradigm shift, and now E equals MC squared and relativity theory changes everything. So I think I'd be pretty cautious about saying you couldn't have conceivably another paradigm shift. No, I, I, this, is about, this, this isn't a paradigm shift. This is saying, can there be a married bachelor? If the declaration, if the foundational declaration of humanism is that humans, irrespective of gender, are equal, then you cannot then have a, we're not going to let women, we're going to let men vote, but not women vote. You can't have that. So, so any person who would, that's a very essentialist definition of what humanism is when it kind of gets down into the fine, well, fine-grained outward. I'm sorry that it's essentialist to say that women are human beings, but they are. Well, that that's that's not, the, the issue is, is yeah, humanism is the idea that human beings are the, the normative status or criterion for human flourishing. It's It's one step removed to say, therefore, everybody should have an equal right to vote, right? It's not the same thing. It's not a logical entailment. I think it's uh, something you should affirm. The question is, how do you affirm it? Uh, you say it's a posteriori and that humanism could never possibly change. And yet you ground it on the same basic framework empirically of gaining new evidence from the world around you that presumably you do through things like natural science. And yet we can't have confidence in natural science that paradigms cannot be overturned. I'm sorry. Or I'm sorry. I, was, I was doing the charitable listening thing where I presumed when you asked the question that what we were asking here is, would it be fair, would it be reasonable in the future under humanism for women to not be allowed to vote, but men to not be allowed to vote, or to, but men to be allowed to vote as just categories? Is there a circumstance under under which some woman might be not denied vote? Yeah, especially if they're a felon. Is there a position under which all women would be denied the right to vote? Yes, if we removed voting from everyone. But as long as the foundational principle is people have these rights, and as long as women are people, it's just set theory that there's no circumstance under which women don't have those rights in that system. This is not, this is, this is simple. I mean, this is set theory logic 101. If women are people and so, people so, have this right, then there's no circumstance in, well, in that scenario. Uh, the second premise, have people have right. this right, is the one that I'm asking about, right? You're just assuming that that could never change, that every no, person no, 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 should no. have this I'm right. I'm talking, oh my gosh. Is it possible that under a humanist regime, humanists could get together and deny women the right to vote and be inconsistent with their own values? Sure. But it's just as possible as the United States saying all men are created equal, but they're not. I'm not talking about what, what individuals may do in getting it wrong. I'm talking about what is consistent with the principles of humanism. And if humanism begins with you're all equal and men and women are both human, then any any proposition that says, okay, we're going to exclude women from human is inconsistent with the values. Could it happen? Sure. I suppose there's a despot somewhere who could claim to be a humanist and then do the most antithetical things to humanism. But that's not a that's not an indictment on humanism. If we're going to compare humanism and Christianity and which one's better for the world, you don't get to pretend that there's a tin pot des, uh, you know, despot out there, tinfoil, I can't even get the, the phrase right, who's going to ignore the values of humanism. You might as well be saying, is it possible for, for there to be uh, Christians out there who are calling for the slaughter of every person on the planet except for Randall? Yeah, it's possible. Only in a really wacko logical sense, it's not 
realistic and it's not an indictment of Christianity. It's an indictment of those people. So if you're going to try to indict humanism, you don't get to say, is there a scenario under which some people might ignore the principles of humanism while claiming they're underneath the principles? I can give you a quick response, Randall. We do have to wrap up, though. I have to say that I get to give you guys a two-minute warning. So sure. if you guys are able to each get a response in that two minutes, great. Otherwise, I do just have to let you know that in order to have about 16 to 17 minutes of q and I've got to kind of push us in there and, like I said, two minutes. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, Matt, I'm not trying to exasperate you. So uh, I do thank you for, for the exchange tonight. I think for, for me, the, the big thing is in terms of our, our rights, things that exist independently of human thoughts about them. In other words, in that sense, are the objective rather than relative to the thoughts of human persons and the social recognition of them. Uh, and yeah, so I'll just, uh, if, if you want to just come back to that one with, with one final time, and then you could turn it over to James. Oh, I don't I don't need to come back on that. There were a bunch of other questions. I'm sorry that we didn't have more time because it's like you talked about Christianity giving us hope. But I would say that Christianity doesn't give us hope for this life. It gives us hope for a next life. And so I don't see how hope's relevant to this. You know, the, the, there's this the righteousness of this life is like dirty rags and God gives trials uh, equally and unequally to people. And this earth is set for tribulation, war, turmoil, turmoil. That, that sounds like American dispensationalism. That That's that's not mere Christianity. It's certainly not an entailment of the Apostles' Creed. Mere Christianity, entailment of the Apostles' Creed, includes judgment of the living and the dead, resurrection yeah, of the and, body. Yeah, and life everlasting. Uh, life so everlasting is, here on earth? Yeah. Yeah, the Christian doctrine is new heavens and new earth, which is... New heaven, the, new earth. Which so, is the... which? No, Matt, let me, I'm sorry. Let me, okay, I wrote a book on heaven, so I mean, I could address these well, topics. Congratulations. Thank you. So, this, so... Uh, the the the, the res I'll, uh, James I'll just answer this and then uh, we'll turn it back to you. Thank you for your forbearance for for both of you. So so uh, I, I mentioned earlier the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of creation in Christian theology. His resurrection body, the body that was raised, is the same body that was laid in the ground. The tomb was empty. First fruits means that's the first beginning of the restoration of all things. Uh, when when you read in places like Second Peter about the new heavens and new earth, just like bo Jesus' body was new. Uh, that is renewed, a renewed body, a renewed heavens, a new earth. That's why Paul in Romans 8 talks about creation groaning, waiting for itself to be liberated because it's waiting for the restoration of all things. To think about earth and heaven opposed is Greek and Platonic thinking. It's not Judeo-Christian theology of the afterlife. I've got to push so, I mean, that's the, a quick... It, yeah. It's not. So when it says... I, I hate to do this, but I, I, do, I really do have to push this into the Q&A just because we have such a short amount of time. I know you've got another round in the chamber, Matt, ready to go, so I'm sorry to do this to you, but just because we do have to wrap up so fast tonight, I do want to jump in. This one, I want to jump into the questions. I want to say, if you guys can also do me a favor, Randall and Matt, we're going to try to get through these with ideally as few rebuttals to the answer of the question as possible. And... Folks also want to let you know, we do have only about 15 minutes of Q&A for tonight, so it's going to be really short and sweet. Only Super Chats of $10 or more are going to be read as we're trying to make these as high of quality as possible, and frankly, as few as possible, as we have very limited time. This one coming in first from Kia Star 67 thanks for your positivity and your kind words. So just showing support, like one of the chatters asked, great channel, thanks so much. Thanks for your kind words, that means a lot. And all credit to the speakers, who are linked in the description. If you'd like to hear more especially on these topics that came up through the debate, you can check out Matt's and Randall's links below. Randall has a link that is 
for his a book related to these topics in the description box, and I have linked Matt's YouTube channel in the description box as well. This one coming in from Native Atheist says, if you rely on a being for morality, Dr. Rouser, then that's not objective. What are your thoughts, Dr. Rouser? Um, so uh, the way that I've described it here is so objective is something independent of the thoughts, beings of human beings. Now, for, for God, basic moral values are not things that are that are a result of God's will. It's not like God wills. It's not a radical voluntarism. They're simply understood to be identical with him. So it's sort of the, the idea of the platonic good uh, on this understanding would be an, an identification with the divine nature. So it's not that God wills evil and wills good, th those respective values. It's rather that God is identical with this thing which transcends nature, and we human beings recognize moral values. This one coming in from Dan Shire says, Great job tonight to both Matt and Dr. Rouser. Says, very engaging and interesting. I've got to tell you guys, this has been one of the more cordial, deep, insightful talks. I'm just grateful that I've gotten to moderate this myself. So I want to say thank you guys. It has been awesome. They say, It's because you're you, here and we're afraid of you. They say, <laughs> while you each are arguing that your view is better, quote unquote, than the other, would either of you argue that the opposing view is bad or in any way harmful? I don't well, know if they mean as a general rule. To be or, fair... To Go be ahead. fair, we I, I would need to have a, a better understanding of Randall's specific version of Christianity, um, because most of the things that I think I'm I, I would launch into as being clearly worse, um, he, he may not espouse to. He, he doesn't hold that women uh, hold a second tier to men, for example. Um, but when he talks about, sorry, uh, new heaven, new earth, and the judgment of people who've been dead, that's an afterlife. If you've been dead and you're revived to be judged, that's an afterlife. That's not this life. And there's no demonstration that that life exists. And when your entire system is focused on benefiting that life, that's not benefiting this life. Okay, yeah, I know I shouldn't get back into this. I, um, just to be sure that we don't go too far into yeah, that topic, I, I do want to give you a chance. Be, Randall, the yeah. original question was whether or not secular humanism has the potential for harm. I what I would like to say is there are expressions of Christianity and expressions of secular humanism that do harm. And what I tried to emphasize in my opening statement at the beginning was the degree to which Matt and I or humanists and Christians can share a common project of human flourishing. And when Jesus came, he said the kingdom of God has come now. What he was the kingdom of God is about restoring justice about comforting the oppressed, et cetera, which is something that starts now, not just in the afterlife. We're going to jump into the next one. Thank you very much. GSP says, Matt values other people, but I don't understand the point. They say the question is, why would Hitler or child sex traffickers or drug cartels be obligated to value other people rather than seek their own profit rather than others? Why would they be obligated to? They're not. You can be an asshole. You can be a monster. You cannot value people if you don't want to. Um, the issue here is about what makes the world better. If you think that Hitler makes the world better, I don't know how to respond to that. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Snaky Jake 9 says, If humanism is superior to Christianity in valuing human life and, quote, all humans are equal irrespective of gender, why do most humanists support abortion while Christians holding to traditional teachings reject it outright? Which one of this is it for? I think it's for you, Matt, but I could be wrong. Okay. It, at worst, 
in the case of a pregnancy, at worst, you have the rights of two people in conflict. And so you're saying that one person doesn't have the right to use another person's body without their consent. That That is the foundational thing, that this person is autonomous and gets to make decisions about their body and who's going to use it. That's why humanists tend to be uh, supportive of abortion rights. This one from GSP says, So in Uganda, if they codify that gay people shouldn't have rights anymore, I guess, would Matt support their right to codify their own rights? I don't have any say in what Uganda can or can't do, um, but it's inconsistent with humanism. I don't know why this is so difficult. Just, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for a humanistic world being a better world. And I've got people questioning, oh, should Hitler be able to do this? What difference does that make? That's not humanism. Why'd you bring up Hitler? Oh, it's because you know it's a worse world. So you picked an example that's absolutely the antithesis of humanism to say it's a worse world. And now you're going to Uganda. Should, I, do I think Uganda should be doing this? Absolutely not. I don't know what the solution is to their laws that are opposed to LGBT people. Um, but that's not humanism. So I don't, I don't see how this is a challenge to humanism. This one coming in from Thidges Up De Weg says, are there any intersections where humanism and Christianity meet and might be a starting point? I think they mean a starting point to working harmoniously together. I certainly would like to think so. That's why I was trying to emphasize that. And with reference to Carl Sagan, I thought it'd be a great olive branch to begin with Carl Sagan. I love Carl Sagan. Um, I often disagree with him, but I just as often agreed with him. And what I tried to summarize there in terms of uh, solidarity, nobility, humility, uh, which I think he beautifully encapsulated in that passage, I think it's a common project we can work on. However long we are on this earth and whether there's a life in the afterlife, we need to learn to get along here now. And, and I'm largely in agreement. I mean, Randall and I are going to agree on a great many things, especially if the things I object to about Christianity aren't part of is. Um, but when you say that it's centered on the Apostles' Creed, uh, I find nothing in the Apostles' Creed that is consistent with humanism or supportive of human flourishing, um, despite his assertion that Jesus is all about human flourishing. This one coming in from GSP says, Randall, would you agree that a human is no more important than any other animal or even an insect if God does not exist? No. No. That this, doesn't follow. This one from Gregory06 says, Dr. Rouser, do you agree with every Bible verse, such as areas of slavery or rules you don't follow? If not, then you're just doing your own cherry picking. They say, what's your method for truth finding in the Bible? Well, I wrote a book called Jesus Loves Canaanites, where I offered a reading of and a critique of apologetic defenses of Canaanite genocide. It's a 350-page book, which I'm not going to summarize here, but that's my method. And, yeah, it's it's not just pick, cherry-picking. This one coming in from, do appreciate it, Lord Stannis says, Dr. Rouser, was it wrong to murder, mur I think they are saying, is it wrong to murder murderers or kill murderers before humans evolved? Or maybe they're saying, was it wrong to murder before humans evolved? And will it still be wrong to murder after humans go extinct? If not, uh, how is your theistic morality truly independent of human opinion? 
Well, so if something is murder by definition of the meaning of the word murder, as I understand it, it's wrong. So killing would be a neutral term. And there are all sorts of contexts in which it is morally justified to kill people and other contexts in which it is not. But I don't believe moral facts about how human beings should act first emerged with the emergence of human beings. I agree. Gotcha. This one coming in from, do appreciate it, Tig, uh, let me know if I pronounce this right, Tigshva Tridster says, question for Dr. Randall. If humans are valuable because they are made in God's image, can they even have any value without God? Well, so God is a necessary being, right, if God exists at all. So uh, there's no possible world on that construal in which God doesn't exist, but human beings do. But if I'm wrong about theism, I've already responded to this idea that a sort of moral nihilism follows. It doesn't. There are atheists like um, Eric Wielenberg, for example, is an atheist and a moral Platonist. So he defends an objective view of morality. Um, people like Thomas Nagel. There's, there's many rich frameworks that are non-theistic. Ronald Dworkin, his last book, Great Philosopher, was Religion Without God. So um, there's different frameworks in which one should could be exploring these issues. You got it. This one coming in from, do appreciate it. Von Zoom says, is religion simply fabled, let's see, fabled stories to enforce certain behaviors? I think that they're saying, I mean, I know that the truth of I, I, both of your worldviews isn't really what's debated tonight, but we'll humor it. Dr. Rouser, I think they're asking, you guessed it, uh, basically whether or not Christianity is true or whether or not it's just to enforce moral behaviors or rules or both i don't know well i'd say both but but uh i i know i think matt mentioned scientology in passing earlier and we can probably both agree that scientology probably exists originally to make people wealthy you got it let me just check if i missed any this one from gsp did i get this they say uh i want to thank dr rouser one of the best christian thinkers of today Humanism is Christianity without any moral obligations or duties. Did I read that before? I don't think so. No. Okay, thanks. Let me just skim for any last questions that I might have missed from the chat. Otherwise, we can let you guys out of here. I know you're both busy guys. We do want to say, folks, we do appreciate our guests. We appreciate their time with us. It means a lot. And they are, as I mentioned, linked in the description. That includes, if you were listening via the podcast, as I said earlier, we do indeed have a podcast for Modern Day Debate. Look it up on your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening via the podcast app, both Matt's and Randall's links are in the description box. That's Matt's YouTube and Randall's book on topics related to this topic for the debate tonight. I want to say huge thank you, Matt and Randall. It's been a true pleasure. Yeah, I hope we get a chance to discuss this or something else uh, another time when we have more time because there's still a lot of questions left. And I enjoyed it. Yeah, Holy. likewise. I really appreciate the time. Thank you both. Uh, one of the challenges today is there's a, a lot of people angry at one another, and we're in our social media silos, and we have contempt for one another, and we need to really work to undermine that and build the channels of conversation. I think we did that tonight, so thank you very much. If there was no God, what would your objection to humanism be? Don't answer it now. Just think about it for next time. You may not have one. I don't know. Well, if, 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 in fairness, if there was no God, I would be probably a platonic moral objectivist like Eric Wielenberg. If I believe that, yeah. Sweet. So, and I could be a humanist and be that, for sure. 
I'd have to study more, but I, I can't dispute that right now. Very Interesting much. to say the least. So let me do one last quick plug. Folks, our conference is coming up on Saturday, April 22nd. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be in Fort Worth, Texas. So if you're anywhere near Fort Worth, Texas on Saturday, April 22nd, we're going to have four huge debates. As I mentioned earlier in the debate, if you did not see it, we're excited. It's going to be Hussein Embers and Matt himself debating on whether or not Islam is true. That's just one example of the huge debates that are happening. The links for the in-person tickets are in the description box. Check them out, as well as the link for watching all the debates live at home. If you're too far from Fort Worth, Texas, you can watch it at home for only a buck, as that helps us cover the venue cost and... My dear friends, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be huge, so we're excited about it. Check out those links right now, and I'll be back in just a moment with some upcoming debates. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. 